Hello and welcome to PassPack Podcast, your audio passport from physician assistant student to certified and beyond with your host, Rebecca Harrell, MPA, PAC. Today, our destination is a high yield breakdown of emergency medicine based on the EOR content blueprint. So sit back, relax, and let's get to it. Hey everyone, and welcome to the show. We have a lot to cover here to prep you for your emergency medicine module exam or EOR. I'm going to be going in descending order of the topic percentages from the EOR blueprint. Keep in mind, this will be a compilation of high yield, but not all encompassing, or we literally be here all day. So with that being said, let's get started with some high yield cardio. What are some differentials for chest pain? Remember, when we're thinking about differentials, we want to think about what's above, what's below, what's connected to it. For chest pain differentials, of course, we think cardiac, so angina, pericarditis, arrhythmias, etc. And you also want to remember your vascular, so aortic aneurysm can cause chest pain, pulmonary, because that's right by, pleuritis, pneumonia. Don't forget your MSK differentials, like costochondritis. Remember, that's your reproducible chest pain. GI also is right in that area. Esophageal spasms, GERD, esophageal rupture, all of those things can cause chest pain and obviously so much more. But those are some of my differentials um, just to get us kind of thinking about cardio. Next question, what are some tests that you can do to rule out life-threatening chest pain differentials? So first and foremost, I would think good H&P. So read your stem because that's going to pretty much give you an idea of what they're going for. So again, is it reproducible with palpation? Was it sudden? Is it chronic? Is it worse with exertion or deep breathing? Is it associated with meals? Has this happened before? Do you see a rash? So for example, like if chest pain is from herpes zoster, You might want to look at the actual skin and you should always do inspection, right? Do you see, you know, a vesicular rash in a dermatomal pattern that might suggest herpes zoster? Or is it associated with an injury like seatbelt sign? So did the patient just have a car accident and now they have chest pain, but you see an overlying bruise in the shape of a seatbelt? That's probably your number one thing is a good H&P, really read your stem. So the next test you can do to rule out life-threatening chest pain differentials is obviously an EKG to assess the electricity, conduction. You can do an echo to assess the actual structure and look at some valves. So you could do the transesophageal echo or you can do the transthoracic. You can also look at your pleural fluid there and see if Um, there's any sort of pleuritis or pulmonary effusion. Some others are obviously cardiac enzymes for cardiac injury. We'll usually get serial readings of those or serial levels of those to trend if they're rising or falling. You can also get a chest x-ray to look at the cardiopulmonary processes, broken ribs, pneumothorax. If cardiac is suspected, you can do additional diagnostic and therapeutic tests. 
If they have angina, you might want to get a stable angina. You might want to get a non-stress test. Or if they have acute coronary syndrome, you would go with that coronary cath. If the problem's more difficult to identify, you might need to get a chest CT or a CT angiogram, especially if you have a high suspicion for a pulmonary embolism. But remember, your job in the ER is to stabilize the patient, initiate the workup, treat if possible, and get consults if needed. Let's get into some high-yield cardiac case questions. What do you expect to see on an EKG in a patient with an abrupt onset of heart rate over 150 beats per minute, secondary to a re-entrant pathway in the AV node? The answer here is narrow complex tachycardia with a shortened or absent PR interval, aka paroxysmal SVT. The most common cause of SVT is AV node reentrant tachycardia or AVNRT. That's an actual reentrant pathway inside of the AV node itself. You can also have reentrant tachycardia originating outside of the AV node. What condition puts a patient at increased risk of a reentrant tachycardia due to an accessory pathway? That's Wolf Parkinson White. While not SVT itself, it can increase your risk for an SVT, and that's because you have an accessory pathway in that condition called the bundle of Kent, and high-yield EKG findings in Wolf Parkinson White is a shortened PR interval and a long QRS showing delta waves. So it's an upsloping delta wave. I would definitely be able to identify that in an EKG because I have seen that come up before on exams. What treatment should you initiate in an unstable patient with SVT? The answer here is synchronized cardioversion at 100 joules. And I remember that it's always electricity if they're unstable. So unstable gets the cable. Because this is a narrow complex tachycardia, you can synchronize on the QRS. If they were stable, you could attempt a vagal maneuver, and if that didn't work or if they were symptomatic at the time, you'll want to go ahead and give them the 6 milligram rapid bolus of IV adenosine, and you can bump that to 12 milligrams of still an SVT after that. It's usually successful about 85 to 90% of the time, and remember, your definite, definitive treatment for SVT is ablation, so radiofrequency ablation. What is the most commonly treated cardiac arrhythmia? The answer here is atrial fibrillation. So a stim will typically present with a middle-aged or older patient that has paroxysmal fluttering in their chest or shortness of breath. You'll usually be given an EKG to interpret for these ones, showing an irregularly irregular rhythm with an absence of identifiable P waves. If it's over 100 beats per minute, remember the diagnosis is AFib with RVR, rapid ventricular rate. So make sure that you interpret, you're able to easily interpret heart rate if you're given a strip. And again, you can see that on my Instagram, how to do that quickly. Another common question regarding a patient with AFib is about cardioversion versus anticoagulation. If a patient has been in AFib for 48 hours, you don't attempt cardioversion. They have to be put on anticoagulation for about four-ish weeks to decrease their risk of stroke as a complication. 
You can also order a TEE, an echo, trans echo or transesophageal echocardiogram to rule out a clot if you need to do a cardioversion before getting that anticoagulant on board. If they do have a clot, the most common location for that is going to be in the left atrial appendage. It's also important to keep in mind what comes first when you're treating atrial fibrillation. So if the patient's stable, you're going to want to treat heart rate control first, rate control, and then rhythm control. So we want to get that rate down, especially if they're in RVR. What common endocrine disorder is associated with AFib? So that's clinical or subclinical hyperthyroidism should be considered in new onset AFib. So you'll get an, a TSH and a free T4 level to evaluate for this. I remember that it's hyperthyroidism because hyperthyroidism pretty much makes everything fast. It's, it's going to make your metabolic activity go way up. So because of that, I think about the fast quivering atrial um, atria, and that's how I connect the two. So hyper is fast, atrial quivering is pretty fast, and that is um, going to be something that you need to think about in new onset AFib. What screening tool is used to clarify atrial fibrillation stroke risk? That's CHAD-VASC score or CHA2DS2-VASC score. What is holiday heart? So that is AFib secondary to excessive alcohol use. So usually in a stem about holiday heart, they will have history of binge drinking the night before, the weekend before, and now they have a new onset AFib or they have sudden AFib. Your 32-year-old female patient comes into the ER with fever and chest pain that is worse with breathing and improved with sitting up and leaning forward. Auscultation over the lower sternal border reveals a superficial scratchy sound. EKG shows new global ST elevation and PR depression. Chest x-ray is normal and labs reveal leukocytosis. She is otherwise stable. Suspecting the most common etiology for her presentation, what do you recommend as treatment? So first, this patient has acute pericarditis. So that is the most common disorder involving the pericardium, and it's associated with various underlying disorders such as infection or malignancy, and in developed countries, the most common cause is viral, so that's going to be the Coxsackie virus. For nearly all patients with acute idiopathic or viral pericarditis, treatment is with NSAIDs and colchicine. If NSAIDs are not indicated, or they're contraindicated, I should say, then you can use steroids. Suspect this diagnosis in stems with chest pain relieved by sitting forward and worsened by breathing, pericardial friction rub, global ST elevations, and pericardial effusion. It's not required for diagnosis to have a pericardial effusion, but they usually talk about a pericardial effusion. Cardiac tamponade rarely occurs in acute idiopathic or viral pericarditis, but it should be watched out for, especially in those with hemodynamic compromise, malignancy, TB, or purulent pericarditis. If a pericardial effusion is present and large enough, you might need to drain via a pericardiocentesis. If recurrent, you can consider a pericardial window. What are the signs and symptoms 
of a cardiac tamponade. For this, the really big one to remember is Beck's triad. Can you remember what Beck's triad consists of? So that's JVD, hypotension, and muffled heart sounds. Those are Beck's triad for cardiac tamponade. So acute cardiac tamponade is life-threatening. It occurs rapidly. Patient might have chest pain, tachypnea, dyspnea, Pulse pressure will be narrow. Think about the preload being decreased and the afterload increased secondary to constriction. So there's not really much room for the heart to uh, enlarge, right? So the pulse pressure is really going to be narrow. You'll also see pulsus paradoxus, which is going to be a decrease in your systolic blood pressure on inspiration because, again, you're constricting that heart more as your lungs fill. Echo may show a small effusion due to a stiff pericardium. In chronic, the body has more time to compensate, and you'll see larger pericardial effusions. Your 56-year-old male patient arrives to the clinic due to new episodes of tightening chest pain when mowing his lawn, which resolves with rest and never exceeds 20 minutes. Which treatment should be given as first line to reduce his angina episodes and improve exercise tolerance? beta blockers. So in addition of controlling angina, they also improve survival in patients with a history of MI and those with systolic heart failure. Cardioselective beta blockers include atenolol or metoprolol. You can also consider CCBs or long-acting nitrates in those that can't tolerate beta blockers. And remember, beta blockers are contraindicated in patients with transmittal angina or angina due to cocaine use because of that unopposed alpha that you'll cause. To further reduce your risk of cardiovascular events and disease progression, all patients with chronic coronary syndrome, unless contraindications exist, should be started on aspirin, lipid-lowering therapy like statins, and potentially ACEs or ARBs. You can prescribe short-acting nitrates like sublingual nitro, to treat acute anginal symptoms, but remember, this just treats the pain associated with the vasoconstriction and it does not reduce future events, offer overall cardioprotection, or treat the underlying condition. You can reduce risk of adverse cardiovascular outcomes in those with type 2 diabetes by educating on tight glycemic control and prescribing an SGLT2 inhibitor like empagliflozin or GLP-1 receptor agonist like liraglutide. All right, we'll hit on some more cardio at the end of this episode, and let's get on to ortho and rheumatology. Name some differentials for a non-traumatic swollen joint. So here for my differentials, I have arthritis, like rheumatoid osteoarthritis, psoriatic arthritis, or reactive arthritis. There's also septic arthritis, which is a super emergency. We have bursitis, gout, pseudogout, tenosynovitis, dactylitis. That's, again, you've seen in psoriatic arthritis, 
spondyloarthritis and sarcoidosis, remember osteomyelitis, and then your systemic things like Lyme disease, gonococcal arthritis from systemic infection, etc. What is the best way to work up a non-traumatic swollen joint, especially if red and angry? So again, H&P, has this happened before? Does the patient have any associated TOFI? Did they recently ingest a lot of high purine foods like seafood and beer? Is the patient at risk for stress fractures? Things like that. The next thing you should say, which is probably going to be asked for you on an exam, is to do an arthrocentesis and subsequent synovial fluid analysis. 100%, if that joint is red and angry, you're gonna get a synovial fluid analysis. You could also order a gram stain and culture. If suspecting a gout flare, use polarizing light microscopy to differentiate between gout and pseudogout. So when looking at the synovial fluid analysis, you're going to want to see if the WBCs are extremely high or the patient's febrile uh, in association, and that could indicate a septic arthritis. Does the light microscopy reveal negatively birefringent needle-shaped crystals like gout? Or does it show positively birefringent rhomboid crystals like pseudogout, aka acute calcium pyrophosphate crystal arthritis? Let's do a couple of case example questions. Your 22-year-old patient presents to the ER with a painful and swollen right knee. He denies any history of trauma or notable past medical history aside from recent dysuria and red eyes, which he attributes to allergies. There does not seem to be any overlying erythema. His social history is notable for multiple sexual partners. What do you suspect is the causative etiology to this patient's presentation? And this is going to be chlamydia. This patient has reactive arthritis. So remember your triad here, can't pee, can't see, can't climb a tree. So he's got ocular symptoms, he's got arthritic symptoms, and he's got urethra or urethritis. That's your triad for, for chlamydia-induced reactive arthritis. And a stem wanting you to think of reactive arthritis secondary to chlamydia, they're usually going to give you a patient under 35 years old with risky sexual behavior and associated symptoms of urethritis and conjunctivitis or uveitis. You can confirm with a first catch urine sample or vaginal swab and testing for chlamydia is done with a nucleic acid amplification technique, so NAAT. Stims discussing recent diarrheal symptoms in presence of reactive arthritis should make you think of Campylobacter, Shigella, Salmonella, or Yersinia. Consider testing for HLA-B27 in patients with reactive arthritis and low back pain or with bamboo spine seen on lumbar x-ray to consider the underlying etiology of something like AS or ankylosing spondylitis. Your patient arrives to the ER with an extremely painful and swollen left first digit. Physical exam reveals tenderness along the course of the flexor sheath with increased pain along the tendon on passive extension. Fusiform enlargement is noted and the patient is keeping her finger in a semi-flex position at rest. Given the suspected diagnosis at this time, what should you initiate as empiric treatment? This patient has infectious flexor tenosynovitis, as indicated by the cannibal signs, which are tenderness of the flexor sheath, fusiform enlargement, 
fingers semi-flexed at rest, and pain with passive extension. For this patient, you should start broad-spectrum antibiotics like vancomycin and a third-gen cephalosporin like ceftriaxone IV, and you'll do that after you get cultures. You're going to want to ensure that the patient does not have fight bite or empiric treatment would change to ensure the coverage of human oral flora with an agent like ampicillin sulbactam, piptazo, or a third-gen ceph plus metronidazole or clindamycin to cover for those anaerobes. If the antibiotics do not improve the presentation of flexor tenosynovitis within a few days, surgical intervention is warranted with either tendon sheath irrigation and drainage or debridement, or if a more progressed stage of infection is seen like necrosis, you'd have to do surgical debridement of the tendon sheaths and surrounding necrosis. After a Fouche injury, an x-ray reveals ventral displacement and angulation of the distal radial fragment. What is the type of fracture described? Smith fracture. So remember your Smith versus Collies. So Smith fracture is going to have ventral or palmar displacement of the distal radial fragment and uh, Collies fracture, which is more common than Smith, is going to have a dorsal angulation. So you're going to want to look at the distal fragment, the most distal fragment, and see where it's pointing. Is it ventral or dorsal? Ventral, like this presentation, is a Smith fracture. Overall, radial fractures are the most common fracture of the upper extremity, with foosh or fall on an outstretched hand being the most common mechanism of injury. Smith fractures are considered unstable and require referral to an orthopedic surgeon. What is the splinting technique of choice for a patient with a stable Collies fracture? That's closed reduction and immobilization with a sugar tong splint. What if a patient had a Fouche injury with a normal wrist x-ray, but physical exam is notable for snuff box tenderness? You should suspect a scaphoid fracture and splint anyway with a thumb spica splint. The anatomical snuff box is located proximal to the thumb, best observed with gently bringing the patient's wrist into ulnar deviation with a slight volar flexion. Blood supplies can be easily compromised in a scaphoid fracture leading to avascular necrosis. Initial treatment of suspected or confirmed scaphoid fracture includes a thumb spica splint, insides and ice for pain, and displaced fractures should be referred to surgery. Next up is GI nutrition. What is the anatomical landmark for generally distinguishing an upper GI bleed from a lower GI bleed? The ligament of treats or trites. I honestly don't know how to say it, but it's that ligament. The majority of melana, aka black tarry stools, originates proximal to this ligament, while the majority of the hematochesia is secondary to origination distal to this. Keep in mind that a brisk upper GI bleed can result in a hematochesia, even though it originates proximal to the ligament of trites. What are some differentials for an acute upper GI bleed? So the most common cause of this is PUD or peptic ulcer disease. You can also get upper GI bleeds with esophageal ulcers, varices, Mallory-Weiss tears, 
malignancy, like from gastric ulcers. Differentiate these with history in a lot of the stems. Test of choice for differentiating is upper endoscopy. What are some differentials for acute lower GI bleeding? Diverticulosis or diverticulitis, hemorrhoids, anal fissure, IBD. Remember, you see some hematochesia more often with ulcerative colitis than with Crohn's. Angiodysplasia, infectious causes of dysentery. Differentiate these with a colonoscopy as the initial exam of choice. Except when suspecting diverticulitis, in which colonoscopy is contraindicated. Remember, endoscopies and colonoscopies, these are both diagnostic and therapeutic. Your patient is a 30-year-old female who comes to the ER with a chief concern of vomiting blood. When you go to assess her, you see a slightly nauseous-appearing female with stable vital signs. She says she drank a significant amount last night and has been throwing up all morning when all of a sudden she saw small streaks of red blood in her vomit. What do you suspect is her diagnosis? Mallory Weiss tear. Upper endoscopy can rule out more nefarious causes of an upper GI bleed and rule in Mallory Weiss tears by visualization of the longitudinal fissures near the esophagogastric junction. You should suspect this diagnosis in a stem with a stable patient and a small upper GI bleed and history of recent vomiting or retching. If no active bleeding is present and the patient is hemodynamically stable without a high risk of rebleed, the patient can be discharged after diagnostic endoscopy. I don't think I've been asked about Mallory Weiss tears more in depth than knowing the history to get to the diagnosis and what an endoscopy would show. I recommend being able to differentiate diagnoses based on the, an appearance of an EGD finding alone. So esophagitis, infectious esophagitis, what are the causes? Barrett's esophagitis, Mallory Weiss tears, esophageal varices, strictures, ulcers, etc. Your 10-year-old patient comes into the ER due to intense abdominal pain, fever, nausea, and vomiting. His parents state this initially occurred around his umbilicus, but has since moved into his right lower quadrant. When palpating his left lower quadrant, he states he has pain in his right lower quadrant. What is the name of this sign and what does it indicate? This is Rosfing sign and it indicates appendicitis. Appendicitis is the most common indication for emergent surgery and is most commonly caused by a fecal lift. Appendectomy should be initiated in these patients to prevent rupture. And there are many different physical exam tests for clinical diagnosis, including rebound tenderness at McBurney's point, rasping sign, psoas sign, and obturator sign. Of all of the different test names, by far the two highest yield to know are McBurney's rebound tenderness and rasping sign. What should be suspected in an altered patient with fever, right upper quadrant pain, jaundice, and hypotension? So think cholangitis superativa here, which is cholangitis with hemodynamic compromise or shock that can be seen with Raynaud's pintad, which is essentially just Charcot's triad, but with shock features, which are hypotension and altered mental status. Charcot's triad, fever, right upper quadrant pain, and jaundice, that's going to make you think cholangitis. 
The most common cause of cholangitis is gallstone obstruction, leading to an ascending infection, most commonly secondary to E. coli. The initial test for this patient is a bedside right upper quadrant ultrasound or CT if the ultrasound is non-diagnostic. However, if asked for the gold standard diagnostic test, choose ERCP, which is both diagnostic and therapeutic. Initial treatment should include broad-spectrum antibiotics like Piptazo, and definitive treatment is ERCP for biliary drainage. I recommend getting really familiar with differentiating all the gallbladder differentials. You can separate them each by just three things. Quality of pain, presence of jaundice, and temperature. So colicky, right upper quadrant pain after fatty meals, no jaundice, no fever, is cholelithiasis leading to gallstone disease, which is symptomatic gallstones. History of right upper quadrant pain after meals, which is now worse, no jaundice, but has fever, is cholecystitis. Remember, you might also see ultrasound changes with this. Right upper quadrant abdominal pain with jaundice, but no fever, should think of an obstructive jaundice from cholecystitis. Presence of Charcot's triad, like we said before, is cholangitis, and Raynaud's pentad is cholangitis superativa. Don't forget about the other diagnoses like gallstone pancreatitis, which is due to a gallstone blocking the ampulla of veda or pancreatic duct, leading to acute pancreatitis with an abnormal liver panel. All right, let's hit up some pulmonary. Name five differentials for shortness of breath. Just five, there's a lot. So I have asthma, vocal cord dysfunction, pneumothorax, pneumonia, pulmonary embolism, heart failure, pleural effusion, pleuritis, STEMI, ACS, croup, pertussis, retropharyngeal abscess, brachial tracheitis, foreign body aspiration, lung cancer, tuberculosis, I mean, there's just a ton. What would be seen on chest x-ray for a patient with a pneumothorax? So this is absence of pulmonary vasculature surrounding a collapsed lung with visualized pleural outline. Make sure you're not confused with just looking at the scapula shadow, but you can actually see the pleural outline. What if it was a tension pneumothorax? So here you'd see tracheal and mediastinal deviation toward the unaffected side, so away from the collapsed lung. A stem in a tension pneumothorax will typically say something about hypotension and JVD after trauma and in the setting of absent breath sounds on the affected side or hyperresonance of percussion on the affected side. Remember your ABCs for nearly all emergencies. However, if a patient is in respiratory distress secondary to attention pneumothorax, the standard is to relieve the pneumothorax before performing endotracheal intubation. So the first line here is needle decompression in the second ICS at the midclavicular line with chest tube insertion occurring after the needle decompression. Your three-year-old patient without a history of immunizations arrives to the ER 
due to a rapid onset of fever, drooling, and weird choking sounds. Physical exam reveals an ill-appearing child sitting in a tripod position with dysphonia and inspiratory strider. The lateral soft tissue neck x-ray shows a thumbprint sign. What is the most common cause of the suspected diagnosis? H flu type B, so hemophilus influenza type B. This is declining in incidence secondary to the vaccine, but still considered the number one cause for now. Staff and strep are being seen more than prior, and I believe that those are the most common in vaccinated individuals. Don't quote me on that. The one to remember is H flu type B. Avoid doing anything that is going to send this kid into respiratory distress. So don't use a tongue depressor to try and visualize the epiglottis. Instead, keep the patient in a position of comfort and calm and consult ENT and anesthesia for airway management in the OR. If there's a near total airway obstruction, controlling the airway precedes obtaining a diagnosis with a bag valve mask or placement of an oral endotracheal tube while awaiting a surgical airway. Most commonly, they're going to ask you about the thumbprint sign, the causative pathogen, which is H flu, and making sure that you're not choosing any answer that is going to distress the kid more, like looking into the mouth or doing a tongue depressor. What is the difference in symptomology of pertussis versus croup or laryngotracheitis? Pertussis has a characteristic whooping cough usually associated in a stem with post-tussive emesis, which is coughing, 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 and vomiting. Croup presents with a barking seal-like cough with prolonged inspiratory strider. Let's do some neuro. So name five differentials for headaches. So there's your regular headache. So migraines, cluster, tension, don't forget your postdural headache, like after an LP. Head trauma leading to epidural or subdural hematoma or a contusion. Cerebral aneurysm rupture leading to SAH or subarachnoid hemorrhage, usually described as the worst headache of my life, quote unquote. Infectious causes like meningitis or encephalitis, which is essentially just meningitis with altered mental status and H-E-E-N-T disorders, such as sinus infections, orbital cellulitis, glaucoma, etc. How do you differentiate subdural hematoma from an epidural hematoma on a head CT? Epidural is appearing as a biconvex or lens-shaped. I remember it looking like a lemon due to the collection of blood limited by the cranial suture lines. So they will be within the super suture lines if it's an epidural hematoma. Subdural hematoma, they're not controlled by the suture lines. So this will look biconcave or crescent-shaped like a banana due to the ability to cross those suture lines. So epidural, I remember looking like a lemon. Subdural, I remember looking like a banana. 
Your 53-year-old patient with a history of hypertension and atherosclerosis is brought into the ER by her wife due to a sudden onset of paralysis in her right foot and leg with associated sensory loss and lesser mild weakness affecting the ipsilateral arm. Her speech is slowed and soft and gait apraxia is seen when she tries to walk. Where is the most likely location of the lesion? Left anterior cerebral artery. I remember this by anterior contralateral artery. So the contralateral leg is what's more commonly affected in anterior cerebral artery. Don't confuse this with MCA or middle cerebral artery, which will affect the face and upper extremities over the lower extremities as you see with anterior contralateral or cerebral artery. Posterior cerebral arteries will show, um, strokes will show ocular symptoms like homonemous hemoniopsia. Can't say that three times fast. It took a few tries. Cranial nerve three palsy, etc. And vertebral basilar is going to give you dizziness, vertigo, nausea, vomiting, or bilateral signs. H-E-E-N-T section. Let's go. What are your differentials for a painful red eye? Conjunctivitis, foreign body, corneal abrasion, dry eye, acute angle closure glaucoma, entropion or blepharitis, those can lead to irritation causing pain and redness, allergies, though those are more likely bilateral than unilateral, uveitis, iritis, scleritis, usually more painful than episcleritis, endophthalmitis, infectious keratitis, those are all painful red eye differentials. Painless red eye differentials should make you think of something like conjunctival hemorrhage and even episcleritis or potential hypervascularity by something like a pterygium or an inflamed pinguecula. Which painful red eye differentials require emergent intervention due to risk of vision loss? So there's a few here. Acute angle closure glaucoma, of course, is one that you need to think of. You treat that with pressure-lowering agents, both topical and systemic, and same-day laser iridotomy. Also think of endophthalmitis. You can see a hyphema, which is the blood in the anterior chamber, or hypopion, which is the same thing but with pus. And it requires emergent ophthalmic evaluation for an intraocular aspiration and culture and antibiotic administration. Iritis should also see an ophthalmologist within a few days to treat, and that's usually with steroids. Infectious keratitis, especially something secondary to contact lens use leading to P. aeruginosa infection or herpes simplex keratitis, classically described with the branching opacities seen on fluorescein staining. Scleritis is another vision-threatening condition. Refer with a few days and consider systemic disease as an underlying etiology. Your two-year-old patient is brought into the ER due to a fever. Her mom says she's been excessively crying and pulling on her left ear. Visualization with the otoscope reveals a bulging tympanic membrane 
and middle ear effusion. Though she appears uncomfortable, she is non-toxic appearing and vital signs are stable. What is the mainstay treatment for the suspected diagnosis? Pain management with analgesics like PO, ibuprofen, or Tylenol. If for unresponsive to pain management, therapeutic tympanocentesis may be considered. The standard is also moving towards antibiotic therapy for all patients, especially if they're younger than six months, immunocompromised, toxic appearing, or have cranial facial abnormalities like a cleft palate, you will want to start antibiotic therapy in these patients. The antibiotics of choice in acute otitis media is high dose amoxicillin or augmentin. All right, so those were our heavy hitters for our emergency EOR exam. Let's get into some miscellaneous to hit on some of the lower percentages in this blueprint. What should be suspected in a teenager with abrupt onset of severe scrotal pain, nausea, and vomiting, and how is it diagnosed? Testicular torsion is the answer for this. Your PE or physical exam will likely show edematous and indurated scrotum that does not improve with scrotal elevation. For example, the way it would in epididymitis, and this is called the friend sign. In testicular torsion, there will be an absent cremasteric reflex, which is usually always within the stem or is the answer to the question. Diagnosis can be made clinically or with a color Doppler ultrasound revealing decreased perfusion or twisting of the spermatic cord itself. And this warrants emergent surgical consults and they're gonna wanna get detorsed within six hours or they have a risk of losing the testicle itself or higher risk of infertility. Definitive treatment is surgical detorsion and orchiopexy or orchiectomy if the testicle is non-viable. You can attempt manual detorsion if you can't get into the OR quick enough. Your 27-year-old female patient with a past medical history of recurrent UTIs comes to the ER with fever, chills, and intense flank pain, nausea, and vomiting. Physical exam is positive for ipsilateral costovertebral angle tenderness. What is your top differential? Mine would be acute pyelonephritis. That should be your top differential for a patient with risk factors for ascending infection like recurrent UTIs, fever, and a positive CVAT or CVA tenderness. You're going to send urine for your analysis and culture and susceptibility testing, and that will come back with pyuria and bacteuria. CT might be warranted, but normal CT does not rule out mild pylo. Another question they love to ask about pylo is whether you admit or not. And they'll usually present it in a healthy appearing pregnant patient and pregnant patients get admitted. Generally, you should admit all toxic appearing, AKA septic or critically ill patients or pregnant patients again with pyelonephritis. Also, if their PO is compromised due to nausea and vomiting, they'll need to be able to stay until they can tolerate PO. Treatment is usually with broad spectrums that have good gram negative coverage like ceftriaxone or piptazo. When should you suspect placental abruption over placenta previa? So these are both 
going to present as third trimester bleeding. Placenta abruption has painful third trimester bleeding, whereas previa is painless. Remember, you should also suspect abruption and anybody with a history of hypertension, hypertension and painful uterine bleeding in third trimester or recent cocaine use. They like to throw that one in there. What are the three Ds of endometriosis? Dysmenorrhea, dyspareunia, and dyskesia or diarrhea. So four Ds, I guess, technically. We can do five Ds if you also want to say dysuria, which they can also have. They can also have abdominopelvic pain. That's going to be worse around menses. Abnormal uterine bleeding can be seen and chronic fatigue, probably from anemia. This can only be definitively diagnosed by visualizing on a laparoscopy or by doing a biopsy of the endometrium, the ectopic endometrium and confirming through histological evaluation. What diagnosis should be considered in a patient who reports seven days of expansive and elevated mood, decreased need for sleep, pressured speech, goal-directed behaviors, decreased inhibitions with or without features of psychosis? This is bipolar type one. Type one is seven days or Mania with the presence of psychotic features if less than seven days. Type 2 is at least four days and has predominating major depressive disorder with episodes of hypomania. But they have to have a diagnosis of MDD with at least four days of mania or hypomania. Which hematologic diagnosis can result in pruritus from taking a hot shower? You should think of polycythemia vera here. The symptom is called aquagenic pruritus, and polycythemia vera is a chronic myeloproliferative neoplasm secondary to clonal proliferation of myeloid cells. Other key findings with polycythemia vera is urethromyalgia, which is burning pain in the hands and feet with erythema, pallor, or cyanosis, but palpable pulses transient visual disturbances like amaurosis fugax and epigastric GI pain. Quick correction, I just looked it up. It's amaurosis fugax. That is how you pronounce that. Back to the show. Physical exam will usually be notable for a palpable spleen and labs will show the elevated RBCs, so HCT, HGB platelets, sometimes white blood cells can all be elevated. Peripheral smear will usually show thrombocytosis and bone marrow aspiration will be hypercellular. High yield clonal marker for this diagnosis is JAK2 mutations. Another high yield fact to know about polycythemia vera is its treatment which is with therapeutic phlebotomy and low-dose aspirin. All right, let's get into our mixed bag of rapid review questions for emergency medicine. What is the most common cause of volvulus? Sigmoid volvulus. You should suspect this in elderly patients with a history of constipation and bent inner tube appearance on a KUB, in which the loop points towards the right upper quadrant. 
What is the most common cause of acute coronary syndrome? This is atherosclerosis leading to thrombus obstruction of the coronary arteries. What is the most definitive treatment for benign paroxysmal positional vertigo? Epley maneuver. Don't confuse this with the test for the diagnosis, which is Dix-Hallpike test. What is the most common cause of small bowel obstruction? This is a mechanical obstruction from adhesions after surgery. What is the most common symptom of a PE or pulmonary embolism? That will be dyspnea. Now, what is the most common sign in a PE? That's tachypnea. Don't get thrown off by signs versus symptoms. Remember, symptoms are going to be what the patient states. They're subjective. And signs are things you witness yourself as a clinician. Those are going to be objective. What drug is a contraindication for a patient with sublingual nitro? So that's ED medications like PDE5 inhibitors. Examples are sildenafil or tadalafil. Which diagnosis should be suspected in a patient with decreased GFR, proteinuria on UA, and positive RBC casts about three to six weeks after an impetigo infection? It's acute post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis. You should also suspect this diagnosis in the same patient one to two weeks after sore throat or pharyngitis or confirmed strep. What is the most common cause of hematuria? That's UTI. The most common cause of UTI is E. coli, which is also the most common cause of prostatitis. What should be suspected in a patient complaining of sudden onset of flashes and floaters in one eye with a black curtain appearing to encroach in their visual field? That's retinal detachment. It's not usually painful and not usually red unless it's associated with trauma. So you should have a high index of suspicion in a patient complaining of new onset flashes and floaters and a black curtain appearing into their vision. What is the first line treatment for active seizures? Benzos are your first line for active seizures, preferably diazepam or lorazepam, but obviously you're going to ensure the ABCs first and foremost. So airway, breathing, circulation, benzos. What is the classic triad seen in intussusception? colicky abdominal pain and vomiting, palpable sausage-shaped abdominal mass, and current jelly stools. What diagnosis is evident by the lateral soft tissue neck x-ray showing a thumbprint sign? It's acute epiglottitis. Your differential here is the steeple sign, which is seen in croup. What diagnosis should be considered in a patient with bitemporal hemania opsia? Pituitary adenoma, which presses on the optic chiasm, leading in a very distinct pattern on a visual field test in which your temporal visual fields bilaterally are gone. I have seen this in a patient and it is wild. What is the most common injured vessel in an acute subdural hematoma? So in a subdural hematoma, this is usually from tearing of the bridging veins located between the arachnoid membrane and the dura. And because they're veins, it's a slower bleed, which correlates with their presentation on a stem or in real life, which is they had an injury and slowly they start to deteriorate versus epidural, which is due to the middle meningeal artery usually. It's a much faster bleed and you will have that lucency period or latent period where you're out, you wake up, and then you crash. What is the difference between an incarcerated and strangulated hernia? Incarcerated hernia is trapping of the contents of the hernia without the ability to reduce. 
Worse is strangulation, which is when the trapped or incarcerated hernia have now compromised their blood flow due to the increasing edema that happens with incarceration, and this results in ischemia and necrosis. What is the most common cause of an upper GI bleed? This is peptic ulcer disease. This is most commonly caused with an infection of H. pylori. And remember, duodenal is the most common ulcer associated with this. I remember this from Cram the Pants, which is a fantastic podcast, when he says, dude, give me food. Duodenal is the most common, and it will have symptoms that are better with food and worse hours after eating. So dude, give me food. Gastric ulcers are worse with food and improved by not eating, and they're more nefarious when you think about the fact that they're usually connected with gastric cancer. All right, only a few more questions to go. What is the most common complication of a lumbar puncture? That's postdural headache. You're going to prevent this with a higher gauge non-cutting needle, like a pencil point Whitaker or a Sprottle. If intractable and debilitating, you can perform an epidural blood patch. Otherwise, treatment is with bed rest, hydration, NSAIDs, and sometimes IV caffeine. What is the first line treatment for scabies? That's permethrin, 5% lotion for a patient and close contact, and repeat it 10 days later. ST elevations in which leads indicate obstruction in the right coronary artery. That's your inferior leads, 2, 3, and AVF. Memorize that, memorize that, memorize that. Entrapment of which extraocular muscle presents with a classic upward gaze deviation from an orbital floor fracture? and that is the inferior rectus muscle. Which mood stabilizer is classically associated with an adverse effect of nephrogenic diabetes insipidus? Lithium, and remember lithium is also high yield for causing hypothyroidism. All right, that's all I have for you all today. That is the High Yield Emergency Medicine EOR. I would also recommend not to forget some of your family medicine diagnoses because They love to cover some family med diagnoses as well, just because some people use the ER as their primary. You can check all of my resources online in the show notes, and I have a ton of links, but for the most part, I use UpToDate. You can check out my website for more resources and more information and all of these notes from today's show, including all of the answers to the questions. As always, check on my Instagram for daily questions, and every other day I put out mini quizzes on my stories for you to see, and then updates in healthcare I post weekly. Don't forget, you can get a 20% discount to Picmonic using code PASSPACKPASSPORT, one word. Thank you for joining me today on our show. I hope you enjoyed it and you learned a lot. Please, please, please go to my website, www.passpackpodcast.com. Go to the contact section, let me know what you thought, drop a comment, drop some feedback so I can incorporate them into future episodes, and be sure to check back here for updates on our next episode coming out, which will be geared towards family medicine. Thank you for joining me today on PassPack. I hope you enjoyed the show and learned something along the way. Until next time, safe travels. Thank you.